Okay, please have your Bibles to Acts the Apostles, Acts 22. And last week we ended in Acts 21, 40, and I'll read it to you. And when he had given them license, Paul stood on the stairs, and beckoned with a hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, comma. And that, of course, concluded Acts 21. So this morning I did a bit of research to see if any other Bible also had the break at the end of a chapter. And Luther's Bible has the break. The Geneva Bible has the break and the Dewey Rhymes Bible has the break. So I believe that probably all of the Bibles, going back to the Bishop's Bible, Tyndale's Bible, have all followed one another's lead. I guess it's somewhat awkward to uh, change a trend when it's been up and running for so long. But it's interesting because this is the only place in the Bible where a comma ends one chapter and another chapter initiates, or another chapter comes after the comma break. Very unusual, and like I said last week, you would have thought that they could have maybe added five more verses, ten more verses, or twenty or thirty verses to conclude Acts 21, but they decided, as I say, going back probably to the Bishop's Bible, or perhaps uh, Jerome's Vulgate, to put a break at the end of Acts 21, And as I say, they've continued that trend ever since. 22, verse 1. Men, brethren, and fathers, he my defense, which I make now unto you. Paul takes a position here of a defense lawyer. And Paul is going to represent himself. And sometimes you can do that. But saying that, let me say this, that if you find yourself in a courtroom and you want to defend yourself, just be aware of a couple of things. First of all, you are going to be up against professional lawyers, professional barristers. And therefore, it's not going to be as easy to think. In a perfect world, it'd be great to represent yourself. But if you do that, be careful because the powers that be, the experts, will attempt to trip you up. But here Paul says in verse 1, Men, brethren, and fathers. Now Paul is a Jew speaking to the Jews. And therefore, he can address this group of men as fathers as well. Because like I say, he's going to be thinking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers. And yet, like I said last week, The Lord Jesus Christ told us prophetically from Matthew 23 to call no man rabbi, being teacher, call no man master, being teacher as well. And also you think of the secret societies, master mason. He says, don't call each other masters. And on top of that, he says, don't call anyone father concerning spiritual people like Catholic priests and Anglican priests. It's out of the question. It's out of order. So don't be too hard on Paul. Don't be too surprised to see him referring to this group of men as fathers. He's also being respectful because Paul was probably around 35, 40, and uh, he's going to be addressing people that are older than him, maybe in their 50s or the 60s, and therefore he's simply being deferential to them. So hold that thought in mind, please. Two, and when they heard that, he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept them all silence. And he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, Yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. Yes, you are, Paul, and yes, you were, Paul, and yes, Paul, you will forever be a faithful Jew, a faithful son of Abraham. And yet, according to John chapter 16, what Paul did pre his salvation, uh, salvation, like detaining people, like torturing people, like putting people to death, like Muslims are doing around the world today, he did all that according to John 16, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he didn't know God. This must have been devastating for Paul to realize later on in life. He was zealous, the last part of verse 3, 
And he said he had the perfect man of the law. Yes, he knew the Old Testament inside out, but so did David. That didn't stop him getting caught up with the whole Bathsheba incident. So does Solomon. He would write thousands of proverbs, and yet that didn't stop him getting over his head uh, when it came to women, over a thousand wives, so and so forth. So here Paul, yes, a Jew, born in Tarsus, and uh, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a picture of submission, a picture of learning from the best, and yet all of that, according to John 16, didn't result in Paul's salvation, pre-Acts chapter 9, and on top of that, all of Paul's knowledge of the Old Testament didn't stop him being a religious zealot, or as the world would call him a bigot, but that's a little over the top. Look at verse 4. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering unto prisons both men and women. Yes, he persecuted the way, being the church, unto the death. Paul was a murderer, and the Mormons believe that if you commit murder, you can't be forgiven. You have to shed your own blood. And for many years, the Catholic Church believed in what was called the seven deadly sins. And one of those seven deadly sins, which is not scripture, by the way, was murder. And they thought that if a Catholic murders somebody, they couldn't be redeemed. And you know that we are saved by the blood of Christ and we are saved from all of our sins. So here Paul is addressing his Jewish audience and he says, I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Now he must have been breaking when he gave this account of his life because he knew that many good people like Stephen were put to death as a result of Paul's ignorance. And yet he's doing this to show the Jews that for a period of time he was wrong. You see, Paul, uh, Paul, the apostle, was referred to as Saul of Tarsus. And if you know your Bible, there are two Sauls in the word of God. One starts good and ends bad, and one starts bad and ends good. Five, and also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren. I went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. That was the mistake that caught the Nazis out. They had records of everything. I mean everything. Send this train here with X amount of Jews. Send this train there with X amount of Jews. And when Nuremberg came around 1946, all these documents were presented to the court and they were found guilty. Some hung themselves, some committed suicide, some did 10, 15, 20 years and then walked it. And when they got Eichmann in 1960, he was held in Israel for a period of weeks and months. And they went through his whole history with a fine tooth comb. And for many times, uh, for many days and months, he denied any knowledge of the final solution, so on and so forth. And they found a document that uh, Heydrich had sent to Eichmann, and Eichmann had countersigned it. And that was his death warrant. And here, Paul is making it clear how the high priest was involved in this, I won't use conspiracy, that's over the top, but this decision to interrogate the Christians, to round them up, and he says also from five, one more time, the high priest also doth bear me witness. The high priest can affirm what I'm telling you to be so. And all the estates of the elders, being the Sanhedrin, excluding, of course, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, from which also I receive letters unto the brethren, like an arrest warrant. And he's saying really this, that if you're going to detain me, if you're going to question me, if you're going to give me a hard time, give these guys a hard time because I was only following orders. And that was the same line that the Nazis used at the end of World War II. And yet they were still arrested, detained, interrogated, and as I say, some put to death. And he goes on to say from verse 5, how he went to Damascus, modern-day Syria, to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Jerusalem being the eternal city, not Rome, 
and uh, he wanted to find out more about this early group of Christians. And what I said before, I say it again, that what the early church has forgotten, we will never know. They really did suffer. And I guess if you want to experience suffering, go to China, go to North Korea, go to parts of Africa. Six, and it came to pass that as I made my journey, I was come nigh unto Damascus about noon. Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. He's recapping the event from Acts chapter 9. And it says uh, from Acts 9 and also from Acts 22. How it came to pass that as I made my journey, I was come nigh unto Damascus about noon. Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. He wants him to know that a supernatural event occurred which completely turned him. That's the word they use in the world of espionage. He was turned. He worked for this group of people and he works for us. We call this conversion. We call this repentance. A complete about turn. And I fell onto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? No doubt in Hebrew. And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And yet if you get Acts chapter 9, and I ask you to do this when you get some time, read both chapters. Acts chapter 9 and Acts 22, there are differences. And people say, is that a contradiction? No. The Holy Ghost is quite at liberty to add words and also to subtract words. And here Paul is speaking to the Jews and he's further elaborating on what occurred from Acts chapter 9. I remember some years ago listening to an atheist doing a debate with a radio presenter, a Christian. And he went to this piece of scripture, Acts 22. And he said, Acts 22 and Acts 9 don't match. There's a contradiction, which of course is false. And I was waiting for the interviewer to take this atheist, this ex-Christian pastor, I should add, to John chapter 12. Because in John chapter 12, there's an event when God the Father speaks to God the Son. And we are told in the Gospel of John chapter 12 how the people thought that it thundered. Others thought that an angel spake to him. In itself, what's it got to do with this? Well, those people that were around the Lord Jesus Christ, around Acts chapter 12, could hear the sound from heaven, but they couldn't discern the words. And that's what is going on here. Behold that thought, 9. And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid. But they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. That's true. They heard a sound, but they couldn't discern the actual words. It wasn't audible to them. Or, as they used to say in the old James Bond films, it's for your eyes only. It's just for you. What the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, from Acts chapter 9, was only for Saul of Tarsus, was only for the Apostle Paul. It was sacred. And therefore, why would you expect Paul's unsaved traveling companions to be privy to what the Lord Jesus Christ has just said to him? 10. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. As I say, this was just for the ears of Paul, for your eyes only. And yet keep John 12 in mind, if you ever have to try and harmonize Acts 9 with Acts chapter 22. Look at verse 11, please. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. That's kind of humiliating. For maybe months or years, Saul of Tarsus was calling the shots. And maybe I can call him the uh, Hadric, the Butcher of Prague. I don't know. Maybe that may be a little over the top. But he was a murderer. He detained women and children. And therefore, if he could get saved, why can't you get saved? And yes, some people after World War II repented and got saved. Some of the uh, Japanese uh, prisoners of war repented and got saved. And uh, a well-known serial killer 
whose name escapes me, repented and got saved. So there's great hope for people who turn to the Lord in faith in order to be saved. And yet here, Saul of Tarsus has been knocked off a horse, which is a great picture of repentance. He looks up at the Lord. He's in submission to the Lord. And the first thing he says to Jesus Christ is, Lord, probably in Hebrew, being Adonai or Kulios in Greek. And he knows that Jesus Christ is almighty God. And yet he's gone from top dog to flat on his face. And I guess that, would, that must be a great shock to him. And yet, don't worry, from that would come the salvation uh, for Paul the Apostle. And from that, 13, maybe 14 epistles. And from those epistles, the conversion of millions of people all over the world. And yet, Paul is blind, literally. He was blind spiritually, of course, before Acts chapter 9. But now he's blind, literally. And it says in verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood, and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. Brother Saul, receive thy sight. Paul is referred to here as Brother Saul. And I want you to understand this, because he hasn't yet been baptized. And uh, people who hold to uh, water baptism, people who hold to baptismal regeneration, like the Church of Christ, the Campbellites, or the Roman Catholics, or most of Christendom, I should add, don't believe that you can be saved until you're baptized in water, which is, of course, ridiculous. Just go back to the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized, and he got saved. But here, a man called Ananias has been brought into Paul's account, has been cited, and he tells us that this man was a devout man according to the law, and therefore the Jews would have known him. And once again, Paul is going back to those that he knew, those that he was initially working with, like the chief priests and the elders. And from those individuals, he comes across a man called Ananias. And what he's trying to do is this. He's trying to bring more people into the equation. He's trying to substantiate what he wants the Jews to understand. He doesn't want them to think he's mad, like a king would be of the opinion later on in the book of Acts. Uh, I think it was Festus or Agrippa. I can't remember which one it was. And that individual would say to Paul, thou art mad. All this learning has made you mad, which of course is incorrect. But this man, Ananias, comes across Paul, and uh, he stands over him, and it says, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. So a miracle comes to Saul of Tarsus, thanks to this third party. But again, he's called Brother Saul before any baptism takes place, before anything which would be witnessed by others takes place. Now I believe when Paul got knocked off his horse, Acts 9, I think it's verse 6 from memory, he says to Jesus, what are you have me to do? And I think around Acts 6, excuse me, Acts 9, verse 6, 7, 8, or thereabouts, that's when Paul got saved. And that's what we call justification in the sight of God. Because God looks on the hearts, whereas man looks on the outward appearance. So only God knew at that time that Saul of Tarsus was saved. His companions had no idea what was going on. They saw this great Jewish individual, a defender of the faith, flat on his face or flat on his back, whichever you want to you know, pitch him to be, I'd imagine he's flat on his back, I don't know. We are told from John 18 how the enemies of the Lord were thrown back on their backs, literally, you know, fell backwards because they're enemies of the Lord. And yet when you get saved, you're on your face worshipping the Lord. So I think Paul was probably initially flat on his back. He's blind. He's trying to make sense of what's going on. And his friends, his uh, acquaintances have no idea what is going on. And that verse comes to my mind, how the mighty fall. And yet, Brother Saul, 
receive thy sight. So justification in the sight of God versus justification in the sight of man. Look at verse 14, please. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. That term for the just one, or the holy one, is in reference to Jesus Christ. And yet if you get a hold of a Catholic catechism, their catechism from 1994, they refer to Mary as the Holy One. That's blasphemy. The Holy One is Jesus Christ. The God of our fathers, Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai, uh, El Alion, God has many names, hath chosen thee for service. And yet I won't rule out salvation to some extent because Paul was the exception, not the norm. That thou shouldest know his will and see that just one, Jesus Christ, and should us hear the voice of his mouth. If God Almighty hadn't knocked Paul off the horse, from Acts chapter 9, Paul would never have come to the Lord to be saved. I believe that. Paul was a religious zealot. Paul was like Muhammad. Paul was like many of the popes over the last 2,000 years, or 1,600 years, if I'm to be precise. There was no Catholic church, you understand, until the 4th century AD. But Paul was a zealot. Paul was very religious. And he thought he had the truth, but he didn't. And like so many people, he, pre-Acts chapter 9, was on the wrong side of God. Yes, he was in the majority, and yet he was in the wrong. And I think when eternity commences for the world, I think when people die, when the great white throne is being and gone, there's going to be billions of people screaming in the lake of fire, which burns forever, wishing that they had got saved, wishing that God hadn't condemned them. And yet the truth of the matter is, according to Ephesians chapter 4, we give ourselves up to ungodliness. We give ourselves up to wickedness. And then God, according to Romans chapter 1, writes us off. But I don't want to go off script too much. The great verse here from 14 pictures, on the one hand, God the Father and God the Son working in conjunction, which results in Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the Apostle. 15. For thou shalt be as witness unto all men, what thou hast seen and heard. Paul, you're going to suffer. You've caused my people suffering and misery for five, six, seven, eight years or thereabouts. Now you're going to suffer. It's going to cost you something to follow me. And you're going to pay for what you did to my people before you got saved. Now, I love you. I'm going to give you grace to endure it. And yet you're going to suffer more than Peter, more than John, and more than Barnabas and Ananias and all the others from the New Testament, because as my son suffered for the sins of the world, so you're going to suffer for my son. Also from 15, for thou shalt be his witness unto all men, Jew and Gentile, of what thou hast seen and heard. If you're born again, you are Jehovah's Witness. Never mind the Jehovah's Witnesses, they are the false witnesses. If you are born again, you are Jehovah's true witness. Whether you're a man or woman makes no difference, boy or a girl, if you're born again, you are his witness. And you can share the gospel, you can give your testimony of what he's done for you, but if you are a woman, you're not committed to be a teacher of the word. But I don't have script too much. Also from 15, mark it in your Bibles, that God Almighty has chosen Saul of Tarsus to be an apostle. Not the apostles. Today's Catholic Church elect a pope, and the pope elects the cardinals. It's a circular religion, if you will. The laity have no say whatsoever as to which cardinal or bishop or archbishop is chosen, or which priest goes to what parish. The laity have no control whatsoever over how their church works. And yet, as I say, the Pope elects the cardinals, 
and the cardinals elect the Pope. Very cosy, isn't it? It's very circular, and yet here, Solitarsis has been chosen without the apostles' knowledge whatsoever. Very interesting. 16. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise me baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. This gets cited by the Campbellites. This gets cited by the Church of Christ. This gets cited by the Catholic Church to prove, quote-unquote, that to be saved from all of your sins, you need to be baptized, which is heresy. You are told very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 3 that baptism by water doesn't wash away our sins. We are saved and kept saved by the precious blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ. And yet, once you get saved, if you can be baptized, you should be baptized. So what is verse 16 telling us? Let's break it down. And now, why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for, Paul? Arise, number one. And be baptized, number two. And wash away thy sins, number three. Calling on the name of the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is what saves you. And then you get baptized to show that you have been redeemed. But what gets overlooked from verse 16 is the first part of this three-part breakdown, if you will. Arise. There's a call to do something. Arise. It's like a picture to repent. Do something. Therefore, once Paul had arose, once you arise, that's justification in the sight of God. Again, uh, again, the Lord looks on the um, heart of man. He sees whether you've arisen or not. And therefore, if you arise, he sees it and he imputes his justification to you. He imputes his righteousness to you. So you arise, you repent, okay, or you believe. All these words are synonymous as far as I'm concerned. Arise, repent, believe, whatever, it's all the same thing. Arise and be baptized. Total immersion and wash away thy sins. But you know that water can't wash away your sins. I mean, if you, you know, if you've got any common sense, you know that that can't wash away your sins because that's a work. And if it could wash away your sins, why did Christ have died on the cross for you? What does the word of God tell us? Without the shedding of blood, there's no omission of sins. So the term to arise means to repent, which means to believe. And if you want to take this verse today, you can spiritualize it, which is what I'm trying to do now. And take it to be this, that arise, repent, believe, will cause you to get baptized, which will result in your sins being washed away. In a spiritual sense, of course. But I won't spend too much time on that. 17. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. And saw him saying unto me, Make haste, and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. This is extra biblical revelation. As far as I can recall, this piece of scripture from verse 18, which my Bible is in red, is only found here. Now again, go back to Acts 9 to get a chance and understand what I've just told you. That Acts chapter 9 gives you part of Paul's initial salvation. Acts 22, he's building on his initial salvation. Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, Jesus speaking. For they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Very true. And here the Lord steps in to rescue Paul. And yet on other occasions, Paul wouldn't be rescued. And that shows the way the word of God is laid out. Certain times God steps in and saves his children from a whipping, a literal whipping. Uh, other times he allows them to endure such a painful event. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. When the blood of thy martyrs even was shed, 
they also were standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him, guilt by association. And I believe this, that had this incident concerning Stephen had gone to court, and had a court heard what took place back in Acts chapter 7, for memory, Saul of Tarsus would have been found guilty of this man's murder, or maybe manslaughter, because Saul of Tarsus was sent by the chief priests and co. He had his orders from Jerusalem. He didn't do this off his own back. And this man, Stephen, was innocent. And he, like the Lord Jesus Christ, was put to death for being innocent. And again, Paul is wanting the Jews to understand that what he did was in ignorance. And as a result of doing that, he still got saved nevertheless. And he wants jury to be saved. So I will say this, that if Paul could get saved, and he did, why can't you get saved? And people say, well, he was a murderer. You know, I've done some pretty wicked sins. That's okay. We've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Just repent. Go back to 16. Arise. Repent. Arise. Believe. Arise. Receive Christ and be baptized. And wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Being Jesus Christ, of course. But I will close in verse 21. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Get out of Jerusalem, Paul. It's not your time yet to be martyred. It'll come when I'm good and ready for it to come. But for now, depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Peter won't go to the Gentiles. James, my half-brother, won't go to the Gentiles. Mary, my mother, the so-called Queen of Heaven, won't go to the Gentiles. In fact, Mary isn't found after Acts chapter 1. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ never referred to Mary as mother. Did you notice that? He always called her woman. Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. I will send you to the Gentiles. Not the early church, not Pope Peter, not the leaders of the early church. I will send you far hence to the Gentiles. And you, Paul, are going to write most of the New Testament. And you, Paul, are going to witness indirectly and directly millions of people all over the world getting saved as a result of your writings. Because I'm going to give you, Paul, the gospel of the grace of God. Not Peter, not James, not John, the beloved disciple, the beloved apostle who took Mary to be his spiritual mother. Of course, John was the Lord's half-cousin. But I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, but it's going to cost you something. They're going to try and kill you. The Jews are going to plot against you. And you're going to be slandered. You're going to be uh, shredded. And you know, Somebody once said, if you live for the Lord, they'll call you a fanatic. And if you don't live for the Lord, they call you a hypocrite. And that's true, isn't it? If you live for the Lord, you are a fanatic. But if you don't live for the Lord, you are a hypocrite. You can't win, can you? And that's why it's best to do your own thing and allow the Lord to bless you and grow you in his own way at his own good pleasure. So there you are, chapter 21, ending in verse 21. And there's always much material covered in 30 minutes. And you've got progressive revelation. You've got the Holy Ghost allowing you to get a further picture from Paul's initial conversion. And the Holy Ghost, who wrote the Word of God, as the author of the word of God is quite at liberty to add to the scripture and to subtract from the scripture. And that's why many quotes in the New Testament, which are from the Old Testament, don't always match up word for word. Because the Holy Ghost is adding words and he is, he is subtracting words. Because he wrote the word of God. If you are an author, you know that when you write something, you have the good pleasure. You have the ability, the right to amend your work. Because you are the author of such work. So... 21 verses, and next week we'll pick it up in Acts 
22 verse 22. 